If you've got a Bible, I'd love, love it if you would turn it to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read two verses there. You probably already know what verses. We're going to continue our series entitled Friend of God with this eight-week run answering the question, what are God's friends like? Last week, we started off uh, the four-week run of talking about God's friends, uh, some of God's friends in the New Testament. And four weeks before that, we talked about some of God's friends from the Old Testament. This week, we're talking about my favorite disciple. Now, I know we're not supposed to play favorites, but he's my favorite of all the disciples. And you're gonna see why. Uh, it, it, I don't know if anyone's ever asked you. They're like, hey, which of the 12 are you most like? When I would hear people ask Pastor Robert that when I was younger, and he would always say, Peter. If people ask me, I typically say, John. And I'm gonna show you of the Gospels, John is my favorite of the four Gospels. There's so much meat, and I'm, I'm gonna show you why I think there's so much meat. They all traveled in proximity to Jesus, but John had something completely different with Jesus. There was the 12, then there was the three, little Bible trivia, who were the three? Peter, James, and John. And then there was one. John. I'm going to show you the, the number one verse, in my opinion, that really displays John's intimate friendship with God, but I'm going to do it later in the message. But I thought I'd show you 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, because these could only come through, remember they're not from him, but they could only come through someone who had intimate friendship with God. Listen to what he says by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Remember, the word knows in Scripture is a very intimate word. In fact, many times in the Old Testament, it's used to describe the intimate connection between husband and wife. This word knows is extremely gushy. He says, anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not even know God. For God is love. In my opinion, John in 1 John 4 is saying, if you backed me into a corner to try and describe the God of the universe, here's my best attempt. This is what he's like. He's not just love. He's so love that it absolutely positively affects the way you love. And if you don't love, it's one of the ways we know you're not walking with the one who is love. Only somebody who had an ushy-gushy intimate relationship with God could be used by God to pen words like these. I want to show you four things that John teaches us about friendship with God. And we're going to spend a little more time with each point. Here's point number one. The first thing John the Beloved teaches us about being friends with God is God's friends are shaped by intimacy with God. When I talk about being friends with God, every once in a while, someone will essentially, after a message, come up to me and talk about how they feel they are disqualified 
from being able to be friends with God even though they are a child of God. They'll have a variety of reasons. They did something in their past or they don't spend enough time with him. They have all these different thoughts of why they can't be friends with God. What I've learned is a decent amount of the time, it's simply because they're comparing themselves to someone else. And so they begin to think, well, only people like that can be friends with God. And then the enemy jumps into that conversation and says, that's exactly right, not people like you. But here's something I wanna show you about God's friends. All, A-L-L, capital A, capital L, capital L, all of God's human friends are a work in progress going through God's process. Every single one of them. We've been talking about them for nearly two months now. They all did stupid stuff. Why? Because they were stupid. So are you. So am I. This should be encouraging. All of God's friends are a work in progress. Here's what that means. If you see yourself as a work in progress, you're qualified to be a friend of God. Let me show you the other side of that coin though, because that's the humble side. The arrogant side is if you don't think you're a work in progress, you've just created a barrier between you and the God of the universe. And you're not going to be able to be best friends with God. Here's how I know. When you convince yourself you're not a work in progress, you've convinced yourself you don't need the help of the one who works on you, in you, and through you. All of God's friends are a work in progress. Do we have any works in progress in the room? Yeah, that's good. If the person next to you didn't raise their hand, nudge them during altar ministry and say, you need to go down. I want to show you, John, the process. I don't have the time to walk you through all of it, but I want to show you. Mark chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, kind of show us, without telling us the whole story, how John started off with Jesus. Because Jesus gives him a nickname. Now, I want you just to imagine what it would be like to get a nickname from Jesus. John and his brother got a nickname. I'll read it to you. These are the 12 disciples Jesus chose. Simon, whom he named Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. This is not a peaceful nickname. <laughs> this nickname most likely reveals they were a touch problematic when Jesus said, follow me. They were a little bit messy is another way to say it, right? I just want to draw your attention to one of the messes they almost created. Jesus cut them off, but they almost made one of the biggest messes in the New Testament. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 begins to tell us this moment in Jesus' ministry on the earth. As the time drew near for Jesus to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village. Now remember, there was, there was a big issue between Jews and Samaritans, all right? Jesus sends word ahead, messengers with a word ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus 
because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn these people up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Shut up, you fools. They're not going to follow us if we call down fire from heaven to kill them all. But this is how much of a work in progress John was. Jesus is on mission. He resolutely is heading towards this Samaritan village, and then they're not received. And essentially, James and John come to Jesus, mess and all, and say, Jesus, this is ridiculous. Do they not know who you are? Listen, I know some of the other guys are the sweet ones, but my brother and I, we are the heavy. Listen, Jesus, this is Preston's paraphrase. We have an in with the Father. And if you want, if you're really ticked by these people, we can take care of it. We'll just call down fire from heaven and kill them all. I want you to think how stupid you have to be to say to the one who came to be killed, why don't we just kill him before you die? I don't care how disqualified you think you are. I don't think you've ever said to Jesus, I can call down fire and kill my neighbor if you want. <laughs> no, I know you have it. But John did. But let me fast forward to Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, and watch how John is described towards the end of his life compared to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church. How is that possible? to go from wanting to kill people to becoming someone all the people counted on to hold up the pillar of truth, no matter what it cost. I'll tell you how, it didn't have anything to do with him. John went from being a powder keg to a pillar. It was simply because he was a work in progress, going through God's process in close proximity to Jesus. Here's the second thing. John teaches us about friendship with God. God's friends are not concerned with perception. Remember I told you at the beginning of, of this run, uh, talking about some of God's friends, that if you really do a deep dive, there's so much overlap in their stories. Most, if not all of them, at some point did something really stupid. All of them had holy moments with God. Like if you just look through friendship with God, study those in scripture who were best friends with God, you will see there's a lot of commonality, a lot. And one of the things you will see is the friends of God care very little about the perception of man. I don't mean that they walk around going, I don't care what you think about me. That's how I used to talk when I was immature and insecure. I don't care what you think about me. I actually did. That's why I said I did it. 
But as you mature, you get to a place where you, you sound a little more like this. It's okay. No matter what you think of me, it's okay. I've learned I probably can't change it. Is it because I don't care what you think? No. It's because there's actually someone who I care far more what he thinks. All of God's friends do. To those who are not friends of God, the things God's friends do will seem exaggerated and excessive, but God calls them extravagant. I'm going to give you two pictures of this. If you want to turn, Matthew 26, you can see this beautiful moment towards the end of Jesus' life on the earth where Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, Jesus in Bethany, he visits the house of a man with leprosy, and Mary comes in with this very expensive gift. And I just want to read you this story. Verse 6, Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in. This is Mary. John, the book of John tells us it was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over Jesus' head. Watch the disciples' reaction. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. Why did you just waste this money? They literally say, what a waste. I, just, I want you to get this picture. She's doing something extravagant for Jesus. And they look at it and go, that's a waste. Watch what they say next. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You'll always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. She's poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I love this next verse. I'll tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, what this woman just did will be remembered and discussed. Jesus put his disciples on blast because they clearly had not yet learned that there is no gift given to God by any of his children that God looks at and calls a waste. It's extravagant. It's extravagant. It's not exaggerated. It's not excessive. It's just extravagant. The more of a revelation you have of what Jesus did for you, the more you will do with and for Jesus. Why did Mary do what she did? She was undone by what Jesus had already done for her. He hadn't even gone to the cross yet. And this girl is going, this is the most expensive thing I have. I got to pour this on you. I need you to know I don't care about any of this stuff when compared to how much I care about you. And the guys running closest to Jesus said, how is that benefiting our cause?
Jesus goes, are you serious? For the rest of the earth's days, wherever the gospel is preached, they're going to talk about what this girl just did for me. John 13, I want to show you a moment in John's life where just, it's just one moment, but a moment in his life that kind of shows he was so in love with Jesus, he was really not concerned with the perception of man. I'm going to read you the verse, John 13, verse 23. I'm going to read it out of the New King James because it's my favorite way it's translated. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. This is why John is called John the Beloved five different times. In the book of John, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he doesn't just talk a big game. When all the disciples are reclining and Jesus is reclining with them, apparently, John was experiencing a holy moment with Jesus. So just to kind of drive this home, what a big deal this is, I want to illustrate this, okay? Is Wes here? Wes, are you in the back? Yeah. Wes, let's just sit right here in the front of the stage. I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but he can already tell where this is going. <laughs> Great thing about Wes is I already know. As bad a man as he could be in the octagon. He wrestled his flesh to the ground a long time ago, and he cares far more about the perception of Jesus than the perception of man. But I just want you to imagine, this is Jesus, and I'm John, and you're the disciples. And I want you to imagine they're reclined, all right? Now, I don't know how you sit when you're reclining, but I kind of sit like this when I'm just chilling. Like, I, even if somebody's in a meeting, I'll kind of cross my leg, and my arm is up over the couch or the chair or whatever. Right? You got the picture? I, this is kind of the picture I have with Jesus. Right? So, Wes, we kind of do that. We kind of just cross your leg and then put your arm behind me. Yeah. Jesus is just chilling. But for some reason, John, knowing his own brother might make fun of him, Apparently, he got so lost in the moment of whatever what Jesus was saying that this is literally, not figuratively, what John the Beloved does. That looks weird until it isn't. Know how many times I've looked weird before man? But the problem wasn't what I was doing, it was just they couldn't see what Jesus was doing in the moment. He was wrapping me up. 
John did not care. When you are drowning in the sea of God's love, you do not care about the perception of man. So we're going to knock John. Thanks, buddy. We're going to knock John because being one of the three, knowing even more than the other disciples what was coming, his best friend was going to die because that's why he came. And I just wonder if he got so wrapped up in the moment that he didn't care about anybody else in the room. And he just laid his head on Jesus' chest. God's friends are just not concerned with the perception of man. I don't need you to understand me. I just need you to leave room for every once in a while there being a moment, and I'm personalizing it, when I'm on this stage and I'm personally feeling like I'm experiencing a holy moment, I might look stupid to you, and that's okay. But he and I are gonna talk about that time I laid my head on his chest, not worrying about what anybody thought about me. I never used to cry in public, ever, because I was weak. And I felt so weak, I never wanted you to see me as weak, so I never cried. And then I got a revelation of how much he loves me and something happened. I stopped thinking so much about what you're thinking about me. John didn't care. This is why David said to his wife, listen, cupcake, I'll get even more undignified than this. This ain't nothing. I am in love and I don't care who knows. Preston, you're a weirdo or I'm in love. Here's the third thing John teaches us about friendship with God. For God's friends, God's love is an identity thing. God's love is an identity thing for every one of God's friends. In two different ways I'm gonna show you. First, it's how they know themselves. The only way to be known for love is to first live in the revelation of how loved you are. I'm a fairly complicated human. I've been complicated since before I could remember. I don't know if you know this about you because you might be thinking, yeah, Preston, you are complicated. Let me just turn right to you. You're complicated too. And if you don't think you're complicated, it means you're even more complicated than you think. David said, you made me so wonderfully complex. Psalm 139. He celebrated how complicated he was. When I was younger, I used to think I was complicated because something was wrong with me. I learned as I got older, the reason I thought I felt so complicated is simply because I hadn't learned my identity in Christ yet. 
Now, 1,000% of my understanding of me starts with how much he loves me. God's friends know themselves based on God's love for them. We're gonna do a little fun exercise and I'm only gonna give you 60 seconds to do it. We're gonna do two exercises. This is the first of the two, okay? If you're seated next to someone, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the next 60 seconds to think about three words that would describe you. So just think for a moment, how would you describe you in three words? Then what I want you to do, I literally want you to tell someone next to you. So just say, here's how I would describe me in three words or three phrases. And then tell them the three phrases, okay? I'm gonna give you 60 seconds. You ready? Go. Some of you are giving an entire list of paragraphs of how you would describe yourself. Fifteen more seconds. All right. Answer for the person next to you, not for the answers you gave. Just say out loud one of the words that they said to you. How did they describe themselves? Okay, smart, energetic. Love it. You know how John described himself? He didn't say fireball. He didn't even say follower. Five different times in scripture, John goes on record and says, let me describe me to you. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. I've actually heard pastors mock John a little bit. You know, John was the disciple. He was the one who actually wrote about himself. I'm the one Jesus loved. I don't know why it's a punchline. I actually think it's something we should all shoot for. All of God's friends understand the starting line and finish line and everything in between of their identity is God's love for them. Now, God's friends don't see themselves as being better than, but they are unflinching in their understanding that they are most certainly and unchangeably one who is loved by. They don't think they're better than anybody. John didn't think, and that's kind of how people have, uh, pastors have taught it every once in a while. You know, John, he, he just, he was struggling, so he's like, you know, I'm, I'm the one of the 12 that Jesus loved. He wasn't saying I'm the only one, and he wasn't saying he loves me more than the rest of them. Here's one of the ways you know. John 11. 
When John is writing about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, here's how he describes them. The ones Jesus loved. God's friends don't walk around in insecurity going, God loves me more than you. That's not how God's friends talk. But they do walk around going, I do know how much God loves me though. And he loves you that much too, whether you're aware of it or not. He doesn't love me more than you, but I have gotten a revelation of how much he does love me. And the awesome thing is he loves us the same way. But God's friends, identity, the way they know themselves is by the love of God, the love God has for them. Second way, it's how they're known by others. Listen to Acts chapter four, verse 13. Peter and John have been arrested. They've been taken before the council and everyone's expecting them to fall in their face. The Holy Spirit comes upon Peter. Peter starts dropping bars by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Under arrest, kind of mouthing off by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says there is no other name by which we are saved other than Jesus. I mean, he's going off knowing it could cost him his life. And the priests, the palace guard, everybody's a little bit undone at how bold they were. But I want you to watch how they were seen, how they were described by everybody seeing this go down. Acts 4.13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were just ordinary men. In other words, they weren't scholars. They were talking to a bunch of scholars who were trying to trap them. And the scholars could see that Peter and John were not scholars, but they could also see what they were. They could see that Peter and John were just ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures, but they could also see Peter and John were men who had been with Jesus. Here's the second exercise. Would you grab your phone? I know usually we're supposed to hide our phone during church, whatever. Just, if, it's okay if you don't have it. For those who have them, just take it out. And I want us to do another exercise, okay? I want you to text at least one person that you know will respond quickly, okay? So don't pick that friend that doesn't respond for like four days, all right? Pick the friend who will respond right now, okay? and text them this question. Now you can, you can preface it however you want. Hey, random text alert if you want to. But here's what I want you to ask them. What three words would you use to describe me? What three words would you use to describe me? Now, I'm doing this for your sake, not for the sake of anybody else in the room, so we don't even really need to wait. And you can text two or three people if you want, just to see what they say. But here's what I'd be curious about. No condemnation. 
No judgment, no shots fired. How many of the people in our lives would describe us as one who has been with Jesus? I don't know if that's the way the people in my life would describe me, but I will tell you right now, by the time, Lord willing, many years from now, I go to be with Jesus, there's going to be a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions about me. But you know what my goal is deep in my heart? That at least my closest friends and especially my family, my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, get together. You can call me anything you want, but the goal of my life is to live in such a way that the people I love most, when someone says, describe your dad, They could say the one who stumbled. They could say the one who's messed up with me. They could say the one who's missed a few moments with me. They could say a lot of things. But if you were back my son into a corner and say, Tyler, describe your daddy in a few words. I am determined to live in such a way that hopefully by the time I die, my son will say to you, My daddy is one who is so in love with Jesus. I don't want him to say he was the best pastor. I don't want him to say he was the best husband. I want him to say, my daddy, wow, he wasn't the smartest. He was one we all knew had been with Jesus. I believe this is the goal God gives each of us as his friends. I want you to be known for this. Do you know how easy evangelism is when you're known? For being loved by God and obsessively in love with God. Such a way that you're undone by God. Here's the fourth thing, and I got to hurry through this. Point number four, the fourth thing John teaches us about friendship with God is God's friends are trusted more than everybody else. And this is where this message might tick you off a little bit. And it's supposed to. Not because I laid it out this way. God doesn't play favorites, but he does prefer his friends. I'm going to show it to you. There are things God gives to and asks of his friends that he doesn't let everybody else get in on. Well, Preston Scripture says God doesn't play favorites. I'm not saying he does. I'm just saying he doesn't trust everybody the same way. He trusts his friends in a completely different way than he trusts the rest of his children. Remember I told you, any child of God can be a friend of God, but not every child of God is a friend of God. Two things God gives to, lets his closest friends experience that not everybody else gets to. First, holy moments. I'm not going to read through these passages, but 
Mark chapter five, Peter, James, and John, Jairus' daughter has died. Jesus kicks everybody out of the house except Peter, James, and John. I wish I had more time to really sit in this, but I just want you to imagine how you would feel as a friend of Jesus if hundreds and thousands of people were pressing in on him to see what he would do with Jairus' daughter. And Jesus looked at all of them and said, everybody out, except my three friends. I think this was a moment that marked Peter, James, and John. Now, in the flesh, one could be like, as compared to others, I don't think this is how they saw it by the end of their lives. I'll give you another one that Peter, James, and John got to experience that nobody else did. The Mount of Transfiguration. They got to see Jesus meet with Moses and Elijah. Peter was so undone, he's like, we, we, we should do something. I mean, he was tripping out. It was such a holy moment. I'll give you one more. The three got to experience that the 12 did not, the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you imagine Jesus knowing he was about to die, stopping everything and saying, I need two things right now. I need to be with my father and I need to be with my three friends. You think that might be a part of your undoing? Jesus gave his closest friends moments his other friends didn't get to experience. I actually think part of the reason he did it was to make everybody else jealous and not in an ungodly way, in a righteous way. What does Romans 11 say? about God's strategy to reach the Jews. He says, listen, I went after them first. They turned me down. So here's my plan. I'm gonna make them jealous. I'm gonna show them what I've extended to them with the people they least expect to see it come to. I think Jesus let the three experience some things so that it would call the others closer to him. One more. Well, I don't have time. Every one of God's friends experienced holy moments. Burning bush. The 300. You can go down the list. Prison cells, the doors of prison cells fling wide open. God's friends get to experience some of the most holy moments with God. And listen, if it's been a while since you've experienced a holy moment with God, don't feel bad. Just get motivated. He says, if you're thirsty, Here's how I roll. 
come get you a drink. You want to sit with me? When I come knock on your door, just open it unto me. It's the God of the universe saying, I want to have holy moments with you all of the time. Second thing, though, that God gives his friends that he doesn't give everybody else, divine requests. John chapter 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross about to die. And he looks over and he sees his best friend and his mother. Now I know many of us think about Jesus hanging on the cross as the son of God, not the one wrapped in flesh with nerve endings. Human feelings just like us. Hanging on the cross, looks down at his mother, weeping knowing she's about to lose her son. And Jesus, in my opinion, gives his best friend one of the greatest compliments he would ever receive. I want to read it to you. John 19, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to his best friend, Here's your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus was dying. He said, there's only one person I can trust my mother to. John, take care of her for me. This originally was supposed to be the first of the two subpoints. And about an hour ago, I walked back into my office back there, and I felt the Lord flip-flop the two subpoints. And this might be a little hard for me to walk through. Because the Lord's teaching me this real time. asks his friends to do the hardest things he asks anyone to do. Just ask the father's best friend, the son. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for you and me. Jesus died on the cross because his best friend asked him to. And at 45, I'm finally learning. It's not punishment when God asks you to do something hard. It's a compliment. And for the better part, the last two and a half years. Whether I realized it or not, I was essentially living in the Garden of Gethsemane in my heart. There was something Holly and I both feel God asks us to do.
And in our flesh, we have a million reasons why we shouldn't. Why we can't. But we can't shake the one reason why we must. Because in a bathroom at Landmark Theater, the God of the universe asked me to do something. Preston, will you do this for me? I've battled thinking it was punishment for something, that it, it was something I did wrong. It's it wasn't until he helped me understand. Preston, I left a book behind describing how often I ask my best friends to do something excruciatingly difficult for me. Listen, I'm not saying what I'm, it's not, it's not about that, it's just for me, it's hard. For you, it would probably be easy. But for me, it's excruciatingly hard. And I went back there and I wasn't even thinking about this situation and this message until he put his finger and just pushed that button in my heart and I started sobbing. Preston, you've been looking at this the wrong way the whole time. The best compliment I give my friends is when I ask them to do exceedingly difficult things. Jesus didn't just do it for me. He did it because his best friend asked him to. <laughs> I said, I've been saying to the Lord since I was a boy, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Only those with a clean hands and a pure heart. And I've said to him, I want to climb that hill. I want to be so close to you. And then one day he says, you know how many thousands of times you've told me that? Preston, what did I say about pure and undefiled religion? It's caring for the widows and the orphans in their time of need. The way you do this for me? I don't know how we've allowed the enemy to get us so sideways where we get angry with God when he asks us to do hard things. But I know it's the enemy's involvement. When was the last time you felt like you were in the Garden of Gethsemane? I don't mean just kind of going, I don't feel like doing this. I mean where you are sweating like drops of blood. God, how do I know you're one of my best friends? How do I know I'm one of your best friends? 
Preston, the answer is simple but excruciating. You do the hardest things I ask you to do. Because your best friend asked you to.